We're in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 as we do a Bible study that we want to just breeze through rather quickly this evening but share this while they're in the other room. And that is as we're talking through these different topics I was coming across a true story. Any of you know Sir Arthur Conan Conan Doyle? What's he famous for? Uh, Which one? Sherlock, okay, Sherlock Holmes. He's the guy who devised it. He put together all those mysteries. He did all that writing. It is interesting that this fellow who was so brilliant to figure out crimes in a fictional way, but to figure out crimes, that he himself got caught up in things that he got snookered, so to speak. There was two girls, their last names were Griffith, and what they did is they did pictures of them with these pixies, these fairies that had visited them when they were at the family getaway. So this girl who was, I think the one was 15 and the other was 12, they had these pictures taken and they submitted them to local papers in that, in that London area and saying that this is what we found in the woods where we live. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle got wind of this and he went to their defense and for years he argued that they was absolutely true, that this wasn't fake, there really were such things as pixies and fairies. Only 60 years later did those girls admit after he had passed away that they had really just taken hairpins and cutouts that they had made up and they had propped them there in the bushes or there wherever and that it was all staged. But then once that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle got on board and publicly went and, and advocated for these girls, they didn't have the heart to tell him that they had tricked him, that they had tricked everybody. You know, God doesn't want us to get tricked. He doesn't want us to fall for something foolish or something silly. So God gives us defensive weapons. He gives us warnings in the scriptures. And when we're talking about the defensive weapons, we've talked about the belt of truth, about being honest. We've talked about the idea of the breastplate of righteousness, that idea of everyday thinking. I want to act like Christ in my comments, in my actions, in my words, in how I'm planning. We talked about the gospel of peace, being confident that you're saved, being confident that that the Lord is doing what that's right, so I have the peace of God, giving out the Word of God with confidence. This morning, I struggled through, and hopefully maybe some benefit to you, I hope. We'll talk about the shield of faith, trusting the Lord a little bit more. Tonight, we want to talk about the next piece of the armor, and that is what he calls the helmet of salvation. There's not a whole lot of detail about it. As you go through the text, and we read, when we get down to verse 16, above all, or in addition to all these, take the shield of faith, wherefore, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation. He doesn't give us any more details. He just says, hey, this is something you need. So I want to ask a couple questions. What do we know about this helmet in ancient days that would help Paul to think about this is something that's illustrative, an analogy. And then what is the analogy? What's he talking about? The helmet of salvation. You you can see what the helmet's like. You, You get an idea. These are replicas that were done up and they give the whole idea what we know that there was a metal headpiece or it could be some leather but typically they're made out of metal they're with these cheek flaps all designed to protect any kind of a blow that would come against your head for obvious reasons to protect the skull from any type of injury and so we understand that aspect but what gets into the question here that begs our discussion is what is meant by the helmet of salvation In order to get an understanding of what it could be, let's answer this question. When he talks about the helmet of, when he talks about salvation in the New Testament, what is he talking about? 
Well, there's three different aspects of salvation, three different ideas or perceptions of salvation if we were going back. And we know this, that when we start talking about, one, this helmet of salvation, everyone needs it. It, remember the text is you all take the helmet of salvation. Parents in the previous chapter, mom, the idea of children, the idea of husbands and wives, you all pick up the, the helmet or the whole armor. So we know, number one, that this helmet of salvation is something every one of us needs. We know, number two, that because it's the helmet of salvation, just like the shield of faith, it is a piece that we need at certain times. Again, I take you back to the illustration of a baseball player. They're always in uniform when the game is going on. But they don't always have the helmet, uh, the batting helmet on their head. They don't always have the bat in their hand. They don't always have the glove in their hand. That comes when, okay, it's a special need at this moment. Likewise, the soldier would always have the sandals on, the, the, the belt on. He would always have, in sitting around, that some type of that breastplate, he would always have that, those items but the helmet he might have off to the side, like the shield off to the side. And there will be special occasions that he needs to grab it. So when we go a little bit further, we say, okay, it's obviously dealing with how we think because we're talking about protecting our heads, protecting our minds, protecting our thoughts. And so this has to do with something in regards to what we think that we need to adjust our thinking some way, somehow. That we need to grab something, the helmet of salvation, so we're thinking accurately when we're being attacked. So that brings us to number four. We, it's how we think about salvation. What salvation? What aspect of salvation? And I remind you that I already mentioned that there's three different aspects. There is past salvation that most of us have experienced. When did that occur? When in the past did your salvation occur? The, the moment you got saved. Then there is the present function of salvation. What is the present aspect of salvation? The idea that we're growing in grace. Then there's, for the sake of alliteration, there's the future. Okay? Let, let's give different terms biblically. Okay? When we are saved in the past, we are saved from the penalty of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, that happened the day you got born again. For some of you, it's been recent. For some of us, it's been decades. Some of us, it happened when we were young. Some of us here, it happened when we were older. But then we have this aspect of salvation, which is happening right now, every day. When you are being saved from the power of sin in your life, where even as the kids were saying, okay, during those times of retreat that had shifted, they were working on speech. They were working on patience. We might be doing the same thing on a regular basis. That's this present salvation, that we are basically growing to show our salvation, or like Philippians 2 says, work out, bring out your own salvation. Future aspect is when we will be saved from the presence of sin. That is when we get to heaven, we no longer have to deal with sin at all. We'll no longer have to deal with any temptation from within or from without. That's the one we're looking forward to, yes? That we'll get to that point. If we were using theological terms, we would say the first is justification. When God declares you are as innocent as or as not guilty as just as if you had not sinned justification. That God looks in you and he sees who instead of you. 
he sees Jesus Christ, that you are covered with the righteousness of Christ. What's the present one? What's the biblical term for this growing in grace? Sanctification. Thank you. And then what's the future one? The glorification. All of these are biblical terms that we talk about that God commended his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And whereby one man's sin entered into the world, by one man came the forgiveness or the justification of sin. That's what we talk about when we say we got saved. It happened in the past. When we talk about sanctification, it's where he writes in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And then he goes on, he says, yield yourselves servants to whom you would serve. Whoever you yield yourselves to, you're going to become their servant, whether it be unto righteousness or if you yield yourself to unrighteousness. And so he talks about that idea of reckon yourselves to be dead in Christ. That's your sanctification. That's your growing day by day. And then we talk about glorification, where in glorification he says that we are conformed, we are predestinated to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. In fact, 1 John writes that he says, when we shall see him, we shall be like him. Okay, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, that we shall become like him. That's our glorification. So thinking of this, when you talk salvation in the New Testament, you're talking about one of these. Maybe you're talking about a couple of these. But for sure when we look at it and say, okay, when he says to these people in Ephesians chapter 6, put on the helmet of salvation, think properly about what? It can't be the first one. How do we know that? Because literally the word is begin to take the helmet of salvation. That's the key. Begin to take the helmet of salvation. For them, it can't be the first one. Why not? What did you say? Somebody said, Dave, you said, they're already saved. They don't have to begin to take it. They already have it. Okay, and so we know that because the idea is that they're called the saints. He calls them brethren. So when he says to them, put on the helmet of salvation, he's not saying to them, get born again. We know that can't be the case because they already are born again. Could it be the second one? Could it be that he's saying, you've got to have pure thoughts? Would you think that that's a possibility? Yes, that, that genuinely is a possibility. However, he's already talked about that. He's already mentioned that, put on the breastplate of righteousness. It seems a little bit redundant. The reason I'm going to give the last one, the double star, is to, what he's saying is, I want you to think more and more about your future in heaven. I want you to defend yourself at times against the enemy by thinking about what's ahead. The reason I say that is there's one other verse in the New Testament whereby we read this one word, helmet of salvation. It's the only one of them that's repeated. The only place it's repeated. It's in the book of Philippians, of Thessalonians, of Thessalonians, when he's writing the Thessalonians, and he's answering questions about future events. And he writes to them, he says, But let us who are of the day be sober while putting on the breastplate of faith and love. Watch what he does. And for the helmet, he says, the hope of salvation. He's in context of this very verse. He's talking about the people who are saying, will we live? Are we living in the tribulation? 
are we going to, are we experiencing the wrath of God? And he makes comment in the next verse that he says, God has, has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about the future. We're not under condemnation. We're not going to be facing some of those experiences that the world experiences. <clears throat> Rather, we're going to be taken up into heaven. So it strikes me that what he's talking about in this parallel passage is that what you and I need to do is when we're under temptation and trials is that we need to think about heaven. We need to think about a hope. We need to think about our rewards. We need to think about standing before Christ at a bema seat so that we are inspired, we are energized, we are given reason to resist temptation more and more. For instance, we could go this, with this thought, okay? We need to fix our thoughts in the future when we are attacked in the present. That when Satan comes with some of his weaponry, that he wants to discourage you, what can help you to maintain your faithfulness in the face of his attacks? Thinking about what's ahead. That this too shall pass. That one day I'm going to give an account to the Lord. L let me illustrate how this is true in scriptures. We know that there are multiple times that Satan attacked different believers throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we know that some of them fell to some of these attacks. We know that one of the greatest of prophets, he had a ministry where he called down fire from heaven. He resisted and stood against 800 different prophets of the prophet of the, of the God of Baal. He wasn't intimidated by those prophets. He had a contest with them. He had them do their chanting. They're carrying on all day and then he in the evening, he builds his altar, soaks it down with water and then he calls upon the Lord in a prayer that lasts all of about 20 seconds and fire comes down. This man was bold. This man was energized. But the very next day he leaves. He quits. He runs for his life. It wasn't 800 prophets of Baal that scared him. Who scared him? It's Jezebel. One woman put him to flight. Okay? Where he runs for his life and he runs all the way down to the southern kingdom. And it says where he read, where we read in 1 Kings 19, it is enough, O Lord, take my life. Can a believer come to the point that they are so discouraged, so disappointed, they may want to end their life? Can that happen? Yes, it can. Yes, it can. Where Paul even writes about that idea. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And just join me for the next few minutes as we look at several different texts. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about some of his experiences and how he dealt with them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, <clears throat> he is going to make it very clear that doing the work of the ministry that he had to do at the time that he did it, it brought him to the end of himself. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in total despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are cast down, but we are not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of our Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death works in us, but life in you. We have the same spirit of faith according as it is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. We also believe, therefore we keep on speaking, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall do what for us? Shall raise up also us also by Jesus and shall do what? Present us with you. What's he looking forward to? What keeps Paul going when he's facing all kinds of trouble? One day he's going to be in heaven. 
One day he's going to be in heaven. For all things are for your sake, that the abundant grace might through thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God, for which cause we don't faint. But though our outward man perish, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. Why? For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. He goes on, he says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen, which we are focused on, they are what? They are eternal. He puts it this way when he writes to the Romans. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What was Paul doing? He was putting on the helmet of salvation. He was putting on this hope, this promised hope, that in the future it'll be much better. That what I am doing, it will be worth it all. He was mind, having a mindset where he was thinking clearly. Do you remember the night that Jesus is leaving his disciples? He's telling them that I'm going to die. Do you remember how they respond? He has to say to them in Luke, uh, John chapter 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be, be troubled. And then what does he go on and tell them? Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many. What's he talk about the next few verses? Heaven. He talks and he gives them the encouragement. Gentlemen, don't let your hearts and heads be torn about by the attacks of despair, but put on the helmet of salvation. Remind yourself, fix your minds, think about the idea that what you're going to have is a future in, with heaven in Jesus Christ. There's false teachers abounding. Paul is running into them in the Corinthian battles. He's running into people who are denying the future, who are denying pure living. And he writes and he says, if in this life we have hope in Christ, do you remember the next phrase? He says, we are of all men the most miserable. This is all we got. It ain't worth it. And then he goes on, he makes this comment, I have fought with beasts, but what profit if the dead don't rise? If the dead don't rise, remember what his next phrase is? We might as well basically eat merry and you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But he puts it for tomorrow we're going to end up finishing. Then he ends up the chapter with this. Even in the face of the temptation of false teachers, he says, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know, he says, that your labor is not in vain. What kept Paul going? Future. The hope that he had in the future. We, we have that same thing about worldliness. Satan's going to attack you with temptations. How do you resist it? 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3 says these words. He says, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. He's talking about the rapture. He's talking when we get to Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, he says, every man that has this hope, what happens? He purifies himself. He has the helmet of salvation that says, I don't want to get involved in that sin because if I'm involved in that sin, when Jesus comes back, oh my. I don't want to stand before the Lord embarrassing the Lord and the cause of Christ. I've got to remember, he's coming back. I'm going to be meeting him. There's going to be judgment day. What's interesting, in the epistle of 1 Thessalonians, if you look at chapter 4, the first few verses talk about possessing your vessel talks about how we handle this body in honor, not dishonor. He even makes that comment that he says, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification in your body, your purity. 
Do you remember this chapter begins with all about, and the focus of the first part of the chapter is sexual purity. That's what he's talking about in the first seven verses. Be sexually pure. Be morally pure. Do you remember where he ends up at the end of this chapter? What prompts and encourages purity in a world that is impure? We know that Jesus Christ shall come from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and we shall be caught up together to be with him. He starts a chapter encouraging purity under and ends it because of the imminent rapture. You, you know, think this through. That the word of God encourages that we resist temptation. The temptation to quit. To stop serving. Let somebody else do it. Paul writes and he says, wait a minute, the reason that I have continually kept the battle, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, why? Why was he so, so persistent? Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, and for all them that love his appearing. Paul says the reason that I didn't give in to Satan's in, uh, influence and his encouragement to quit is because there's rewards. Jesus Christ is going to reward faithfulness. Do you remember in the book of Colossians where he talks about that idea where some people weren't willing to try anymore? And he writes to them and he says, hey, listen, as he closes out the book, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Do you remember how the rest of the passage goes? He makes these comments. He that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. His point is that we ought not to be weary in well-doing. Why not? Because we'll reap what we sow in rewards. He put on the helmet that convinces your spirit, your heart, that it's worth it all, that you need to keep on keeping on and keeping on, that it is well worth the fight. Why? Because of what's going to be in 100 years from now. What's going to be in a thousand years from now? Put on the helmet of hope, the helmet of assurance. There's a preacher that years, he was in his second career. Uh, his first career was he was a trainer at Fort Sills in Oklahoma during years gone by, during the late 50s and early 60s. And he writes about an experience that got his attention. As a, as a sergeant uh, training people in hand-to-hand -hand combat, he said that there was something very different in the late 50s as opposed to the late 60s with the recruits. The military recruits in the late 60s, they at times would fall asleep right during class, right during the time when they were doing the training and performing the exercises and somebody was demonstrating. They were disinterested. They weren't engaged in what they were being taught. He said 10 years later when he was teaching the same course, he said the men would sit basically at the edge of their seats. They were watching. They were attentive. They were wrapped in, in trying to learn. What's the difference? Do you remember the United States? What war was going on in 58? There was none. There was none. There was no immediate possibility of the soldiers going to battle. 1968. What was happening to the recruits then? Within two, three months, they were going to end up in Vietnam. He said that all the men he was training, they would be involved in hand-to-hand -hand combat, so they knew they were headed that way. So what happened? They paid attention. You know, I thought about that is, that's, that's the way some of us are living right now. We talk about this idea of being in spiritual warfare, and we talk about the weaponry. We talk about being prepared. Some of us are living in 58. 
Some of you who are wiser are saying, we're in the 60s. We're going to walk out of here and we're going to be facing an enemy this week. And so this idea of putting on the shield, grabbing the shield and putting on the helmet of of salvation, it's very important. It's more than just a theological discussion. It is a life and death situation spiritually. My friend, put on the helmet of salvation this week. Get behind the shield of faith. Trust the Lord more and more. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to just do a quick rehearsal of Scripture but one that is so important and so vital and so apropos. We know this is true. We struggle at times with discouragement and doubt, but then we have to look and think about what happens when the rapture takes place and how it motivates us. It encourages us. It keeps us pure. It helps us to be more godly. So help us this week to apply the helmet. Help us to use the shield in trusting you more. Thank you for these good folk. Bless our week's ministry when we gather for Bible study on Wednesday and then other ministries that take place, especially the teen camp in a week from now. I pray that you would use that to impact lives for all eternity. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. God bless you. Have a good week.